Alongside from Standard Club. Hello and welcome to Alongside, a new podcast series from Standard Club for the shipping industry across the world. I'm your host, Chloe Tilly, and each episode we'll be looking at different topics and meeting special guests. This time we're focusing on what happens during the initial response to a major shipping casualty. One of the world's largest container ships has turned sideways and blocked all traffic in Egypt's Suez Canal. Costa Concordia has gone down, one of the biggest passenger vessels ever to be wrecked. A large ship ran aground late last month. The island nation of Mauritius is under a state of emergency. We just heard the Ever Given, Costa Concordia and MV Wakashio all making the headlines there. Well, joining us from London to discuss our topic is Sam Kendall Marsden, Director of Claims at Standard Club. Hi there, Sam. Hi, Chloe. And in Rotterdam is Richard Jansen, Managing Director of Smith Salvage. Hi, Richard. Hi there, Chloe. Now, Sam, you've been involved in a number of high-profile major marine casualties. Just take us through what happens when the club is first notified of a casualty. Well, when the club's emergency phone rings in the dead of night, you don't know what to expect. It could be literally anything. It could be a ship on fire, a ship that's run aground... It could be a case where, unfortunately, people have been affected. There could be fatalities or injuries. There could be environmental damage, an oil spill. And so you need to be ready to respond to a whole range of of circumstances. And soon after that, hot on the heels of that initial call, you'll be faced with a, a maelstrom of information from a number of different sources. It could be from uh, our friends in the salvage community, other insurers, lawyers, a whole range of sources. So you're bombarded with a lot of information, conflicting information sometimes. And the first job is really to make sense of what can be quite a blurred picture initially to bring it into sharper focus so that you can understand what it is you're looking at. And that then drives how you'll respond. Richard, your company provides salvage services. So tell us a little bit about this and its role in the initial stages of a casualty. Yeah, in the initial stages of a, of a casualty, ordinarily, we always uh, pride ourselves to be one of the first to know about it. Uh, and then it's uh, like Sam already mentioned, uh, you know, you try to gather all the information that you can to get a better picture. And in the meantime, you know, you try to indeed get in touch with all the stakeholders, so primarily the ship owner, the underwriters, but also sometimes uh, the authorities and the wider network of people that are typically involved in, uh, in dealing with casualties in the market. Again, trying to get a clear picture and to make sure that we can render the best assistance to that particular casualty. So how critical is it that the right decisions are taken during the first days of a response? Uh, it is. I mean, that's right. There, there are two sides to this, really. There's a, a, a practical side, the practical response to the casualty. And then there's a, a legal and an insurance part to the response as well. And so once we've got a clear picture of the scenario, what we're then trying to do is to establish how that affects us from an insurance perspective, because we view these casualties through the prism of the cover that we provide. So if there's oil in the water, unfortunately, we know that that's a liability that the P&I clubs would respond to. Similarly, injury and death to passengers and crew rec removal liabilities, these third party liabilities are P&I liabilities. And we would be thinking about how that might affect us and how we'll respond to them. 
But Richard also mentioned that a number of different interests are involved in these major casualties. And so on the insurance side, you would have a hull and machinery insurer, and they would be the ones who are primarily responsible for salvage. And so it's important to be talking to them so that we can achieve, hopefully, a holistic response that's the best response overall. And Richard, from your perspective? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you try to uh, to assist the owner as best as you can, uh, and he needs to act uh, in the best interest of the case. So for him as well, hopefully he doesn't deal with selfish cases, uh, you know, as much as we do. But what it will trigger, of course, is also, you know, a reaction within their own organization and also with their broker and their hull and machinery insurer to see what the best way forward would be. So what Sam indeed mentioned, getting this holistic view and parties working together is extremely important, particularly in the offset of the operation, where it's not immediately clear how it's going to work out and anticipate the next steps and make sure that, that all parties are aligned. And Sam, of course, in the early stages, you're only going to have limited information, aren't you? You don't have the, the benefit of hindsight that, that you'll have further down the road. Well, that's right. And in fact, on the Costa Concordia, in the very early period after that casualty occurred, I received a grainy photograph of the ship that had been uh, taken from from social media and it showed it leaning over to to one side people will be familiar with those images and I actually spoke to to one of Richard's colleagues and we had a conversation about the status of the ship at that particular time and I asked him about the degree of lift the degree to which the ship was leaning over at that point and he said 90 degrees and I thought I'd misheard him uh, you know I said hang on do, do you mean one nine or nine zero and he said no no nine zero and that's when I realized that we were dealing with a a very, very serious incident of some magnitude. Are there specific challenges for specific locations? Well, obviously, the remoteness of locations uh, for emergency response operations uh, and the availability of the necessary resources are, of course, complicating uh, a response. doesn't make it impossible, but it definitely does not help if you want to to render a fast response that it's an extremely remote location. And the, you know the first uh, available resources, in addition to uh, to a salvage team, are uh, are quite far away. Sam, the Costa Concordia in Italy was a high-profile casualty wreck removal, and sadly, lives were lost. Can you give us some background and what factors had to be considered in those first few days? The Costa Concordia was at its heart a human tragedy in which thirty-two people sadly lost their lives, twenty-seven passengers and, and five crew. So. That was really the first thing that everybody was thinking about and the authorities were uh, focused initially on getting people off the ship to the shore, ensuring they received the treatment that they needed and then making sure that they could get home. Beyond that human part, which is the most important part, the next focus was in relation to the environment and people will remember the images of the Costa Concordia lying on its side on the island of Giglio in the Tyrrhenian Sea off the western coast of Italy. Um, it's a pristine marine environment and there was great concern initially about the potential for an oil spill but also when you think that a cruise ship is essentially a floating hotel potentially leakage of all of the other things that you would expect to find there so the initial priority was in relation to the um the environment once we're looking at the you know the the salvage uh, part of the operation and so actually what we did after a very short period just taking stock establishing arrangements in london uh, i then set off to the island where 
we listened to what the authorities had to say in terms of their requirements and, and the priority was to get the bunkers or the fuel oil off the ship. And so we actually ran a, a mini tender process involving two principal salvage companies. Richard's uh, company was one of those two companies and we invited them to put forward their best commercial and also operational bids to get the bunkers from the from the ship. And Richard's company partnered with an Italian company to assist them and they uh, came up with the, the best bid. And then the following morning I went out to the uh, the island from the um, mainland area where I'd been staying. Richard and their Italian partner's barge was there. The response started straight away. Sam, what impact can casualty response have on the claims process, both initially and longer term? It lays the foundations for what comes later. So, you know, from an insurance perspective, we want to do the right thing environmentally, but also we recognise that the better job that we do in responding to a casualty the lower the liabilities that we will ultimately face. So, for example, the better the job that we can do in terms of protecting the environment from a spill, if we can avoid a spill, then we're much less likely to face expensive claims later in relation to pollution. Similarly, um, if there are people involved, as there were in the Costa Concordia, if we make sure that we set up appropriate mechanisms for compensating them quickly, and in the right way, then that ultimately is better for them, but it's also better from an insurance perspective as well. And then the Costa Concordia wreck removal. People will remember that the ship was parbuckled or, or uprighted and then refloated and taken away to Genoa to be recycled in an environmentally responsible way. So once that work had been completed, we were then able to uh, clean up the remaining debris and sediment from the seabed And now we're two years into a five-year environmental restoration programme where we're actually replanting that Posidonia seagrass. We're replanting coral in that area. We've engaged a team from the University of Rome to perform that work. Uh, And I'm very confident that in spring 2024, when that project is completed, the authorities will be satisfied with the work that's been done and that we've done the best job that anybody could have done to right the wrong of the original incident. Richard, could you explain to us a little bit about how the relationship works between organisations like yours, Smith Salvage and Standard Club, when responding to a major casualty? Ordinarily, what happens in the dynamics with, uh, with the club, it very much depends on the kind of contract that, uh, that one works under. If there is a request for the removal of the bunkers or, or other pollutants from a ship that is grounded and may likely turn into a wreck, Uh, That can be done on so-called commercial terms as well, which is a commercial contract, which is a time and material basis, which is what we did on the the Costa Concordia as well. It helps to know what both parties stand for, you know, what we stand for as a contractor, what the club stands for, but also how you respect each other's uh, professionalism and drive to, you know, to try to get the best out of it, but also be practical. We've been a member at the club for a very long time by now, uh, first as uh, Smith, and since the last uh, 11 years as, uh, as Boscalas, obviously. So we also have, uh, have a double interest to make sure that, uh, that everything gets done properly. I'd like to get both of your thoughts, if I can, on what other stakeholders and issues that we haven't spoken about need to be considered during that initial response to a casualty. Sam, do you want to start? In shipping, you have a ship owner. 
that ship owner will commonly time charter the ship to uh, another party, the, the time charter for a period of time, that might be a number of years. There may then be sitting beneath that a voyage charter that is a, a contract which provides that the ship is to take cargo from point A to point B. You might have technical managers, third-party technical managers appointed to deal with the technical management of the ship, third-party commercial managers, crewing managers, and so on. And then separately behind that, you've got a web of insurance interests as well. You have the the P&I club, P&I cover responds to third-party liabilities, so things that come at the ship owner uh, or charter from the outside, so claims for cargo loss and damage, for example, pollution, wreck removal liabilities. You would then have uh, a primary hull and machinery underwriter and various other hull and machinery underwriters supporting them, and they ensure the fabric of the ship and its, and its machinery and would typically respond to salvage as opposed to wreck removal, as Richard alluded to earlier. Then you've got all the boxes on board, all the shipping containers. The bulk of that we would expect to be insured by cargo underwriters. So you've got a whole web of shipping interests and insurance interests. You've got the salvor. You've also got local stakeholders, so people within local government, national government, and you might also have indigenous populations that need to be uh, thought about and, th- and their interests considered as well in, in particular cases. And that was a, the situation in the Rena in New Zealand, for example, to pick one particular case. You may have local businesses, for example, uh, hoteliers nearby who say that their business has been affected, local people who say their property values have been affected or, or their right to quiet enjoyment of the property has been affected. So a whole range of different um, stakeholders with, you know, with different priorities. So I think one of the things that we can do in a casualty is to help people to understand how it all fits together. And from an insurance perspective, we can try and give people comfort that the cover is there to respond. So P&I cover provided by the 13 international group clubs is incredibly broad in terms of the things that it covers, but also incredibly deep. And by that, currently, the first $10 million of any given claim is covered by the club in which the ship concerned is entered. From 10 up to 100, those costs are shared amongst the 13 clubs in the international group, which are very well capitalised. They're strong financial insurance uh, entities. And then above 100 million and up to 3.1 billion that's reinsured into the commercial market. So what it means is that system is incredibly robust and can withstand the strongest shocks like the Costa Concordia. We can fund that operation. It doesn't break the system. It can withstand that shock. Thank you both. Well, in a moment, we're going to look at technology's impact on the response to shipping casualties. Alongside... Now, Richard, when communicating during emergency response and importantly, making the right decisions quickly, can you give us a sense of how technology is helping you? So what has technology done for us is that for the last 10 years, we've been actively developing our in-house technology systems to get the information quicker, therefore being able to, to respond quicker to opportunities and also to improve the quality of the information that is being distributed throughout the team. Because also, of course, people within the team get information from different sources, their own private sources sometimes, or 
and then the last thing you need is for that information that might be picked up by someone that doesn't know anything about shipping or doesn't know the situation properly to be triggering a decision. Uh, so it's mainly the software that we have developed and the visualization of information and uh, to have it ready at the click of a button that has really changed uh, for us. And of course, at the same time, by analyzing, you know, shipping movements were also into predictive scripts to see, you know, if this ship or if these ships continue on this course, for instance, there will be a collision in X time. So we monitor those as well. But that's how we try to at least uh, keep up with times and make use of the information that is available to us because speed is everything. I mean, our worst enemy is uh, time. Sam, we heard there of lots of the benefits of technology. Has it been solely beneficial or are there any drawbacks to the increased use of technology? I think one of the main drawbacks is the potential for information overload. And Richard mentioned earlier how you can receive conflicting information and that problem's magnified when you get an increased volume of information. Initially, when notified of a major casualty, as I said at the outset, what we're trying to do is to build a clear picture of what the situation actually is. And that can be complicated if you've got a lot of information to deal with. So I'd say that's that's a downside. Another point is about people with their, you know, their smartphones. And for us, it's about controlling the message and getting ahead of the story. Because if a journalist were to write a story that wreck removal operation proceeding according to plan, no risk of pollution, nothing to see here, that's not going to sell papers. So they like the drama, the tension, the potential threat of danger. But actually, that can be harmful because it then can cause a sense of panic. It can lead to decisions being made that aren't in the best interests of the project. And one of the things that we did on the Costa Concordia was to establish a website of our own where we would post information about what was happening and what people could expect to happen in the future. And then we supplemented that with a series of press conferences. So we had a panel of people, including a technical expert drawn from the ship owners organisation. And they would then be available to answer questions from the press. And that was supported by technical briefings that our experts would write and they were vetted and approved by us and by the ship owner. And then the other thing that we try to do is to prevent people working on the project from acting autonomously in terms of posting information, because it's really important that they're on message with what we're trying to do. You know, there are sometimes elements of danger, potential threats of pollution, ships carry hazardous substances, and we want to be transparent, but we want to make sure that the message is delivered in the right way, in a constructive way. Richard, would you agree with that about the importance of managing the media and, of course, the messaging? Yeah, no, most certainly. I mean, uh, you know, first and foremost, we're hired by an owner to help him uh, with, the, with the problem that he's facing. So our role is uh, strictly a technical one and not so much uh, one to seek media attention because ordinarily not one ship owner is pleased or happy about having a ship aground somewhere or in a, having a serious problem. Of course, what is extremely difficult is to keep that status of not actively engaging with media. I mean, uh, you know, we won't go into too many details, but the one you referred to earlier in the Suez Canal was an example of that. Obviously, the minute that uh, people see something happening, they expect, or at least they go out on a fishing expedition to see whether we are involved. We obviously politely decline any, any reference to whatever is going on at that particular stage because it's up to the owner and his response organization to do so. You know, with everybody walking around with, uh, with a mobile phone or a camera, 
and trying to make sure that the information doesn't get out from a project, or at least not uncontrolled anyway, is quite a challenge because, I mean, our guys are, you know, we have instilled it into them that they just don't post anything on, on open source uh, media and, you know, avoid that. They know. It's very complex to keep, uh, you know, not to keep a lid on it, but to make sure that, uh, that the messaging is consistent. And also the, the genuine messaging, not so much the, the speculation. And we see that many times, you know, when we get approached by production companies who sell their, their shows to either a National Geographic or, uh, or Discovery Channel, you know, it needs to be spectacular. And that's, uh, that's one of our biggest challenges. You know, we are there to do a job, but not to become movie stars. Now, finally, looking at lessons learned and changes implemented across the maritime industry, how do you see the future in terms of major shipping casualties? Sam, do you want to to tell us your thoughts first? I think that shipping has undoubtedly become safer over time. And so we see, for example, uh, fewer oil spills than we saw in the past. If we go back to the days of the, the Torrey Canyon in 1967, which kicked off the compensation regime for spills of persistent oil for tankers. There were great concerns there about spills. And I think it's partly been through ship design, so we don't have single-hulled tankers anymore. We have double-hulled tankers that mitigate against that. In the light of the, the Costa Concordia, there was an investigation into ship safety there as well and changes made in the cruise industry. I think great advances have been made in terms of crew selection, crew training, I think that the insurance entities, the P&I clubs and others play an important role here as well because they can act as a pressurising force you know, to raise standards. So I think shipping has become safer. And I think if you look at the way that society is changing and society's views, what we're seeing is a strengthening environmental imperative. Things that were acceptable in the past are no longer acceptable today. And the the requirements of the authorities, particularly on environmental grounds, have increased. And that will ultimately lead to a greater cost burden on ship owners, the insurance uh, industry. And then ultimately it will trickle down to consumers. So I think we can expect to see a continuation of, of rising costs. Where I think this is significant, though, is in relation to the latest generation of ultra-large container ships that can carry in the region of 24,000 TEUs or 20-foot equivalent units. So vast amounts of cargo, vast ships. And the Ever Given was one in a growing list of what I would describe as near misses involving those types of ships. And we haven't yet had a major casualty involving an ultra-large container ship where one goes over and we see significant cargo escaping into the sea and that then turning into a wreck removal. And if that were to happen, then the cost would be substantial indeed. I think the other point I'd like to mention um, is also that over the last few years, if you look at where the casualties have occurred, the majority of them have occurred in the Northern Hemisphere and also the lion's share in the Northern Hemisphere winter months. And to the extent climate change drives different weather patterns that pose hazards for shipping, that may then lead to increases in, in major casualties in the future. And then the last point, the final point, is that we haven't seen a casualty in an Arctic region. And with the Arctic sea routes opening up, more shipping traffic going through those routes, transiting those routes, 
I would expect that at some point in the future, we will see a casualty in those regions. And for reasons that Richard will be able to to expand on in terms of the availability of response equipment and the challenges that that poses, again, you would expect the cost to be substantial. Richard, do you want to pick up on those challenges and then your thoughts on the future generally? Like Sam said, uh, I mean, the number of casualties have fortunately been going down due to improvement on, you know, quality and training of crew, the design, the operating criteria, you know, which is very encouraging indeed, because the last thing that anyone needs is uh, for ships to to enter into major issues and, and problems. And, you know, I echo what Sam mentioned in respect of society, what was acceptable a number of years ago is no longer acceptable now and definitely not going forward. So from an environmental perspective, people simply don't accept that uh, something that doesn't belong on their coast or in their waters, even if it's out of sight, to remain there. You know, they basically say it wasn't here before, make sure it goes away and we're not polluting our own, our own backyard. In respect of um, the ultra-large container vessels or other sizable vessels, Ten years ago, we, we did a study on the frequency that we should expect these incidents to happen, and not only from container vessels, but also from, say, for instance, the Valley-class uh, bulker, bulk carriers and cruise ships. So it may look like one of the main challenges for removing um, those kind of vessels. But I think that uh, you know also, particularly with cruise ships of, of the sizes that they are today and the number of people on board from a club's perspective is also one of the worst nightmares, of course, if ever something was to happen you know, in a collision in the channel or whatever, between a large container vessel and, and one of those cruise ships. And what we fortunately see as well changing is that the number of owners, an increasing number of owners, want to be properly prepared for emergencies. So the number of preparedness contracts that we have has also increased considerably, which basically means that they are guaranteed a response and you cut the time that you need to make your services known to them and what, you know, what kind of response you can deliver. But I think one of the main things, apart from these challenges within shipping, is also looking at uh, what kind of developments in technology and politically are going on as well. I mean, if you look at local or regional production, or maybe even 3D printing of objects uh, locally, will have a tremendous impact in the demand for logistics. And that's, of course, what drives shipping altogether. So I think that, uh, you know, looking into these incidents specifically, yes, of course, they will continue to happen. Yes, there will be other skills required. eh? We look into the semi-automatic or automated vessels or fully autonomous vessels. How can we render assistance to that? And that will be likely very different from ships that we we have looked after to date. So we need to have our people and our response organisation ready for, for those kind of incidents as well. Listen, thank you both so much for sharing your insight on what is such an important topic. Richard, thank you for your time. Thank you very much and you're welcome. And Sam, thank you. Thank you, you're welcome. Now do join us next time when we'll continue to discuss the shipping industry with our expert guests. Also, you can subscribe to this series so you won't miss an episode. From me, Chloe Tilly, Richard Janssen and Sam Kendall-Marsden, it's thanks for listening and goodbye. Alongside from Standard Club, back soon. 